Hello, welcome to Thought About Food, a podcast on food and food studies. Each episode, we look at important issues around food, and we talk to academics, activists, policymakers, chefs, or anyone who works on these issues. My name is Ian Werkheiser, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, and director of the Center for Collaboration and Ethics at UTRGV. I think today's conversation is going to be really interesting. I interviewed Donnie Shahar, who's just written a book arguing that, as its title suggests, it's okay to eat meat. As you may well know if you've listened to previous episodes of this podcast, I'm a vegan and have been for over a decade and was a vegetarian for a long time before that. In fact, I first tried to become vegetarian when I was nine years old against my mom's wishes. But I thought Donnie's arguments were quite thought-provoking. As you'll hear, he isn't dismissive of the concerns motivating vegans and vegetarians' choices, and isn't arguing that non-human animals aren't worth worrying about or anything like that. In fact, toward the end of our conversation, he has some quite serious suggestions of how vegans and vegetarians, in his opinion, could be more effective politically. So if that's the case, why does he think it's okay to eat meat? Take a listen and find out, and drop me a line to tell me what you think. But first, let me read Donnie's biography. Donnie Shahar teaches in the Public Policy, Ethics, and Law Program at the University of New Orleans and is a member of the Urban Entrepreneurship and Policy Institute. He works mainly on environmental and political philosophy, and he and David Schmitz co-edit a textbook with Oxford University Press entitled Environmental Ethics, What Really Matters, What Really Works. He's with us today to discuss his new book with Rutledge, Why It's Okay to Eat Meat. And now, here's my conversation with Donnie Shahar. Let me start by um, just asking, how are you doing? Life is really good. Thanks so much for having me on this uh, this podcast. I'm happy to have you. Uh, for me, my semester just ended, so I'm uh, <laughs> I, I've submitted my grades, and so now I can focus on this conversation. If I had talked to you yesterday, it would have been a very different emotional tone coming across. <laughs> well, I'm really glad to uh, to be able to benefit from the the new rejuvenated Ian. Yeah, exactly. Not full of resentment and stress. Um, so I think actually before we get into the book that you've written itself, I'd like to talk about uh, how you came to write this book, both in the in the sense of where did the incipient ideas first come from and what was the actual mechanics of getting it uh, published? Yeah, um, so it was actually kind of an interesting thing. I had been working on issues having to do with individual responsibility in the face of large-scale collective action problems, so things like climate change and other kinds of environmental issues, and not really working in any serious ways on uh, you know, food ethics or, um, or animal ethics in particular. And what happened was I got an email from an editor at Routledge uh, who had been talking with a former colleague of mine about how he had just received a, uh, a, a manuscript for a book on the ethics of vegetarianism, arguing you know, that, that people ought to be vegetarians. And his thought was that the manuscript was great, but it was a shame that so many people uh, you know, eat meat, and yet there is so little in the literature that actually tries to, to defend that point of view to the extent that there is anything like that. It's either, you know, sort of crass, uh, not very sophisticated arguments, or it will be people arguing for a very sort of unusual way of eating meat. So, you know, only eating 
let's say, wild game or only eating meat that has been produced by the most conscientious uh, small-scale family farms. And no one really, you know, going to bat for the way that ordinary people, you know, experience meat, just going out to restaurants and ordering it off the menu, uh, going to the supermarket and just get, getting the regular meat off the shelf. And so his thought was that there's a major gap in the literature, um, you know, on just this kind of behavior that almost everybody engages in, uh, you know, almost everybody in the sense of, you know, 95, 97, 99% of the population, depending on, um, you know, which, which statistics you use. Uh, but, but so his thought was that it would be great if somebody would be willing to, to go to bat for that. The person he was talking with agreed that it would be interesting to have such a book, but wasn't really interested in writing it. But he uh, pointed the editor my direction and said, hey, you know, you should get in touch with Donnie. And, you know, I bet he would be interested in this project. And at the time, I was uh, working on a postdoc at UNC Chapel Hill. And so, you know, it was pretty exciting to have an editor at Routledge reach out to me and say, hey, you know, would you like to write a book with us? Sure. Um, and so uh, that was that was how it came to be. I said, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily intending to write this book, but it's the sort of thing that I have a lot to say about. And um, and it's just a great opportunity for me to uh, to get into a, a really important debate in, in an interesting way. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's all, <laughs> it's nice to not have to then do the secondary sort of search to find a publishing home and to write with a, with a deadline and with a destination kind of in mind. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so when you, so maybe the best way to start thinking through the book itself um, is to say that there are a lot of different kinds of arguments in favor of being vegetarian or vegan. Right. Right. Um, you, you talk about that in the intro to your book as well. Um, so can you kind of run through some of the arguments that you uh, thought of that you had to sort of address and then um, maybe the taxonomy of how you're putting them into two different kinds of arguments uh, you know, or two different families of arguments, I guess. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's this interesting challenge in writing a book on why it's okay to do something because in a way, <laughs> right, the, the default is that it's okay to do stuff. Right. Um, and, well, and, and why it's okay to do a thing that a lot of people do already do. Right. Yeah. Why it's okay to be a normal person doing things that right. normal people do. Um, the, the question sort of becomes, well, why wouldn't it be okay? Uh, and so once you ask that, you know, you can start to see, well, there's kind of a laundry list, right? Some people think that, you know, animals are morally sort of on a par with human beings. And so there's something wrong with just uh, eating them. There's uh, concerns about factory farming, the way animals are treated, the environmental footprint of, uh, of eating meat, the way that workers are being treated in the industry, potential pandemics, um, you know, being, uh, being started by diseases moving from animals to humans. Um, and then, you know, once you, once you get into, uh, you know, some of these practical concerns about how uh, the farming works, there's a sort of further laundry list of explanations for why all those bad things would generate uh, an obligation for consumers not to eat this stuff. So, you know, concerns about 
people who eat meat making the problems worse or violating principles that you know we ought to abide by um, concerns about complicity and wrongdoing or concerns about you know the emotional aspect of enjoying something that's a product of of, of so many uh, wrongful behaviors and so there's just you know this whole universe of different kinds of arguments that you know, each on their own purport to show that it's wrong to eat meat. Um, but it makes it so that if you're trying to defend meat eating, you end up having to, you know, try to say something about a whole lot of different kinds of considerations where, you know, it's until you kind of go through the laundry list, um, it would be possible at any point for somebody to say, well, okay, yeah, sure. Uh, maybe that's not uh, a decisive argument. But what about this other thing? Um, yeah, and this this com- that sort of points to a difficulty in general with having conversations. <laughs> I guess uh, you know that uh, people often, for morally fraught, you know, very sort of salient, evocative kinds of questions, will have a strong moral intuition one way or another way, and then once that sort of intuition is in place they search around for lots of different kinds of arguments that will support their position. And if you attack one of their arguments, they're happy to move to another one, even if they don't, even if those two arguments themselves like are mutually incompatible or they have some sorts of tensions between them. I think, I I think that's exactly right. And I think, you know, if you think about how people come to be vegetarians in the first place or come to be meat eaters in the first place, it's, it's very rare that somebody you know, is sitting down to, you know, survey the literature and come to a conclusion about what they think, you know, all things considered is the the right thing to do. Um, You know, people are raised eating meat. Uh, They might have a certain kind of experience in their lives that that leads them to become vegetarian. Um, You know, a lot of people will report that, you know, their first vegetarian experience was a kind of revulsion, right? And finding out that, that the, the food that they were eating, you know, was a piece of an animal or something like yeah. that. Um, and so, you know, those aren't uh, rational arguments necessarily. Those are, you know, things that play on our, you know, psychology in a certain way, but they're very persuasive kinds of experiences. And once you've had them, uh, you, you know, develop certain kinds of convictions and, you know, it becomes natural in the face of disagreement to try and figure out, well, okay, what are my actual reasons for this conviction? And so, you know, you kind of go shopping. Um, And so I think that, you know, that's, that's kind of the, the experience that everybody has is whether you're on one side of the issue or the other, chances are, you know, you've kind of built up an array of arguments for your position that, um, you know, some of it might be through just dispassionate reflection and thinking, but a lot of it is just going to be shaped by, you know, other kinds of factors where, you know, when somebody says, hey, here's another reason to think what you think, um, you know, it's, it's going to be very easy for you to say, yeah, that's that's right. That's so right. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, even if uh, even if that wouldn't have persuaded you in the first place, and even if maybe it as you say, is in tension with some of your other commitments or uh, is actually incompatible um, with uh, with certain other things you think. 
Yeah, I, I too have been on social media. <laughs> so um, uh, in this book, though, you do look into these arguments because I think it is necessary once people, you know, have her, you know, underlying sort of psychological justification works. Once people have arguments, you kind of have to address them. Um, and you put them into two camps of practice and principle. Is that the distinction? Yeah. So the the basic idea is that, you know, I personally, when I think about what would be wrong with eating meat, the thing that grips me is the issue of, you know, factory farming and how these business models are operating in ways that um, make a lot of people really uncomfortable, make me uncomfortable. Um, and, you know, you think about animals being uh, being treated in ways that you know are not sort of living up to to good standards of of humane practice. You think about uh, massive environmental impacts, and you throw in concerns about you know workers being treated disrespectfully. You throw in concerns about pandemics, and, and pretty quickly it starts to look like you know this is this is a really serious problem that we've got on our hands, um, and how this this major industry has been operating. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people who, who are vegetarians worry a lot about um, the factory farming issue, the, you know, just the way that the meat industry operates. But there's something kind of uh, troubling about that way of thinking about the issue from a, a pure vegetarian perspective, which is that there are ways of producing meat that don't revolve around um, using these kinds of, uh, of troubling practices. And in fact, if you look around, you can see, you know, certain small scale producers of meat that are operating in a way that, you know, maybe it's not perfect, but uh, it's at least, you know, decent in terms of how the animals are being treated doing the best that they can to control the impacts on the environment. You know, workers are being treated respectfully. Uh, there isn't a huge, you know, disease risk. And, you know, once you start thinking about the fact that, you know, look, like there is going to be some environmental impact just in terms of like, you know, carbon dioxide or something like that. Um, but all sorts of things that we do have some environmental impact. You know, if you if you're really serious about about looking for the most conscientious producers, it looks like maybe these concerns about the factory farming and the meat industry you know, aren't going to rule out all meat eating. And so you've got people in the literature like, you know, the Michael Pollans of the world um, who who say, look, you know, you shouldn't just go to the supermarket and buy the, the regular stuff on the shelves. but there are ways of doing this um, that are conscientious. And so if you want to really defend vegetarianism against people like that, then you need to, to show, well, what is wrong with eating meat as such? You know, even if it's produced super humanely and equitably and sustainably and safely and, and so on, you know, why is it just wrong, period, to eat animals? And so... Um, you know, those are the, the arguments that I call the wrong in principle arguments that say it's not about the practical realities of the meat industry. There's just something about eating meat that's inherently wrong. Yeah, I think that that distinction is important because um, it shows that there are areas of overlap between vegetarians and hunters or vegetarians and 
small scale farmers or vegetarians and non-vegetarian environmentalists, um, or even just vegetarians and non-vegetarian people who think it is bad to be unnecessarily cruel to animals, even if you're going to eat them, um, that can push forward certain kinds of policies. So like, you know, I used to live in California when Proposition 2 uh, was getting argued for and trying to get passed. And I was involved in that uh, campaign, which was to give larger areas for animals that were eventually going to be slaughtered. But um, it kept them, you know, from suffering less in the meantime. And so you can find those kinds of political overlaps where you could get something done for the practice, but then there's still places where they come apart in that, uh, you know, in those principal kind of arguments. And I think that that's a really important point to, to sort of emphasize, which is that whether you eat meat or not, there are genuine reasons to be concerned with the way that a lot of meat is produced. And, you know, I hope that this is something that comes out in the book is that, you know, just because I am someone who is on board with, you know, eating meat the way that, that most people do, that doesn't mean I disagree with vegetarians about the magnitude and, and significance of, of this problem, uh, which is, you know, that we are currently producing huge amounts of meat in ways that we really can't justify. Um, and so what that means for you as a consumer, what that means for you as an activist is, is a difficult question and one about which vegetarians, you know, have a different view than I do. But I think one thing that, you know, we hopefully agree on is that, you know, if there are ways that we can uh, make things better for animals, if there are ways that we can reduce our, our impact on the natural world, if there are ways that we can, you know, help workers in the in industry, you know, get the kind of treatment that they deserve. Um, those are things that we should all be taking really seriously. Um, and, you know, what we put in our mouths is, is only part of that picture. Uh, but I think there's a tendency among meat eaters in particular to, to kind of, you know, throw that baby out with the bathwater and say, look, you know, these are the kinds of issues that vegetarians are worried about, but I'm a meat eater, so I don't care, or I don't think that's real. Um, but that shouldn't be the choice. Uh, you know, vegetarianism is a particular kind of activism, a, a particular kind of response to this kind of problem. But, you know, even if you reject that particular response to the problem, um, that doesn't mean that you should deny that the problem is real or be open to opportunities to help address it. Yeah. And I think disambiguating like you just did there between vegetarianism as activism or as like a, a response is useful. Um, do you think that being vegetarian is helpful in ending those sorts of practices or in doing something? So I guess the first way to think about that question is, do you think that it's helpful for one person, you, to be vegetarian if those problems that you say, you know, that you agree exist in the meat in industry as written, um, are, are bad, uh, does it help to not eat meat, you yourself? And then a different version of that question is, does it help to address those problems if you could convince a huge number of people, or I guess everybody all at once, uh, to stop eating meat? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that there's a kind of tempting thought, which is that, you know, when you put in, you know, when you put a, a burger in your mouth, uh, the, the cow that you are eating, you know, suffered because of you, right? Those environmental impacts happen because of you. 
Uh, and if you start thinking hard about how the meat industry actually operates and how plans are made within the meat industry, um, I think it starts to become harder to maintain that there is that kind of direct connection between you know, what one person decides to have for dinner and what the meat industry is producing. Um, I mean, when you're talking specifically about the cow that you're eating, uh, there's just a basic causal reason why, you know, you couldn't realistically be responsible for causing that, which is that, you know, the industry that is producing the ground beef, you know, has sort of carried out its plans without any consideration for what you're eating right now. Um, all of that stuff happened in the past. Uh, but, you know, even if you try to think about it in terms of, you know, the future meat that they're going to produce being influenced by who's, uh, who's buying and consuming their products today. Um, there are just lots of reasons to think that, you know, given the way that grocery stores and restaurants are making their ordering decisions, you know, the chances that you as a consumer are going to, you know, by not ordering a burger at a restaurant today, you're going to change the amount of meat that the restaurant thinks it's going to need, you know, next time it puts in an order, like that's, that's probably not going to happen. It's in fact, almost certainly not going to happen. And even if the restaurant did sort of change its order, the idea that that would uh, cause some large corporate meat producer to, to change its projections about how much meat it's going to sell, you know, in the future at certain price levels, um, again, you know, very unlikely to happen. Um, I don't want to say it's impossible, but, you know, if you're thinking about all of the different kinds of considerations that go into, you know, deciding how much meat to produce at any given time, um, you know, especially given all of the fluctuations that the companies know are going to be happening in the marketplace, the chance that, you know, a single consumer is going to, to meaningfully change those plans, um, is you know very small uh i I don't want to say zero because all sorts of things can happen but um but at least not uh big enough to justify the the level of concern that vegetarians are investing here um i think that if you are going to make the argument that uh that you know this is something that's that's helpful uh you do need to sort of back it out and um, and phrase it in some other way, looking at the, the impacts of the movement as a whole, looking at uh, broader patterns of behavior, some other aspect of, of this kind of activism. Yeah. So this is the kind of collective action kind of problems that you have worked on before you wrote this book, that while it might not be the case that one person voting uh, is going to decide who gets elected to a particular position, it becomes tricky to argue that you particularly need to vote because it's very unlikely you'll do anything or you flying to Spain on a whim, you know, the amount that plane would have taken off anyway, and the amount of weight that you add to the plane is very marginal, or that one fewer cow will be slaughtered at some point, rather than just uh, meat being thrown away, because you didn't uh, eat something that was at the grocery store. Um, which, you know, by the way, also is the, the freegan argument for for eating meat that doesn't contribute to that to that sort of price signal. Right. Um, so the idea would there is that it's unlikely that one person's action is going to have much of an effect at all. Um, so, you know, don't worry about it so much, I guess. Uh, but 
it is the case, maybe, or is it the case that uh, a group of people of some size, you know, you, how big that group is then starts to affect things, can have an effect on sending price signals, making there be more vegetarian options at places, making them have less meat at restaurants or at grocery stores, um, then fewer orders for chickens or eggs or cows, uh, which then has, you know, knock on effects to producers, you know, and so in the end, with a movement of people, you can do that. And if that's, if that's true, then maybe there becomes some sort of shared obligation. So you need to participate in the group that's doing this good thing, because we need at least 500 people in this town to do that. And, you know, we want you to be one of those 500, because we need 500 of them. Yeah, see, that strikes me as a much weightier way of phrasing the argument, right? Because I think it's probably not true that, you know, as an individual, you're going to to make that big of a difference. But I think it's absolutely true that when you've got a large number of people working together as, as the vegetarian movement has been, um, you can start to see some really, you know, substantial changes. You know, you look around at at restaurants starting to offer more vegetarian vegan options you start going to the grocery store and seeing whole sections you know devoted to to meat alternatives and research being done on synthetic meats and and you know so on down the line there are all sorts of impacts that you can you can attribute to you know vegetarians working together on this kind of stuff i mean if you think about why i wrote the book right uh Probably one person giving up meat, you know, on the margin isn't the sort of thing that's going to create a public debate that would be worth contributing to. But uh, I wouldn't be working on this subject at all uh, if not for the combined efforts of all of those people. And so I think that there is a powerful kind of argument there um, for seeing vegetarianism as a, a beneficial source of you know all sorts of different kinds of pro- uh, progress in in society, um, and you know so you you sort of made the jump, which I think uh, a lot of vegetarians do, from thinking that this is a really valuable cause that people are contributing to, to thinking that therefore everybody has a duty to uh, participate in, and I think that's where the argument um, runs into trouble. Uh, I don't disagree at all that vegetarianism is a really valuable and important cause that, um, you know, people who participate in that cause are are helping to advance. But I think that when we sort of back up a little bit and think about this this one cause uh, in the landscape of all of the different ways that people come together to take action on really important problems, um, it starts to become less clear that each of us has a specific moral obligation to take action on, you know, each individual cause. So, you know, is it, is it plausible that people have an obligation to take action on the meat industry issue? And let's say, you know, the problem of uh, global poverty, the problem of uh, unjust policing, uh, you know, refugee problems at various borders around the world. Um, problems of, uh, you know, illiteracy among uh, young women in many uh, countries around the world, uh, people being vulnerable to easily preventable diseases in in many areas. I mean, you know, you can kind of go down the list of of problems that we we all kind of are aware uh, exist out there. 
and lots of problems that we we don't really necessarily pay a lot of attention to, but but are very real. And it starts to become, I think, pretty plausible that you know there is space for people to not be specifically beholden to each of those causes, but rather to try and find some niche for themselves in you know, the broader ecosystem of activism and say, you know, these are the problems that I'm going to tackle in these ways. And I recognize that there are other problems that, um, you know, that are, are certainly deserving of, of response, um, but that's just not going to be where I'm going to put my effort. And so I think, you know, there is a, an important argument to be had that, you know, there is a valuable cause here that people can contribute to. It's good for people to contribute to it. Um, but I think that where vegetarians go wrong is in arguing that because this is such a good cause, everybody has to be, uh, has to be a participant. It's wrong not to participate. And I think that's not true. I think, you know, it's, it's wrong not to participate in anything. Um, but it's okay for people to pick and choose where they're going to put their efforts. Yeah, there's a lot. Uh, that's, I mean, it's a good point. I think there's a lot that comes off of that. So uh, one question then is, do people have sort of the, the, I don't even want to say right, but is it okay morally, for as you're implying here, for people then to kind of choose the actions, choose the movements to participate in, choose the moral calls to respond to um, that they want to, right? So like the ones that personally move them because of their own circumstances or their own backgrounds that have some relevance to them? Um, or do we have some kind of duty to figure out which ones are either like the worst, right? That we need to do the things that are most urgent or most bad, most harmful. You know, maybe some people would say, you know, we got to deal with climate change or a lot of other things won't matter, or we have to deal with nuclear disarmament or a lot of other things won't matter, you know, something like that. Or maybe we have a duty to figure out uh, what's like the, the easiest thing to do, like the lowest hanging fruit, where we might actually have some effect and then we can move on to other things as we're building up a movement. Is there some kind of duty uh, to respond to arguments for which ones of these you should pick? Or is it okay for us to kind of just pick whatever good things uh, we'd, we'd like to participate in and help with? So I think that the, the best answer for you know, how to pick a cause or how to pick your battles, let's say, you know, is going to have to be you know, open to a lot of different considerations counting. And I think open to, you know, people having different strategies, because I think it's, you know, it's good when we have people specializing in different ways and, and you know, taking on lots of different things. And it would be kind of a, a problem if, um, you know, if our account of ethical activism turned out to require, you know, everybody to do the same specific kind of activism and then nobody does the other stuff. Um, so I think it's, it's important that we be open to, you know, different, different people going in different directions, possibly on the basis of different, uh, different reasons. Um, but I think that, you know, all of the things that you're pointing to here are things that ought to go into the hopper in some way or another, right? So, you know, the fact that you are personally attracted to a certain kind of activism, you know, that, that doesn't seem like, you know, the sort of altruistic kind of reason to take action on it that, um, that we might like. But I think, you know, it, 
it can pretty naturally flow into those kinds of reasons if you start thinking about, well, you know, how much of myself am I willing to invest here? Or, you know, what kind of, you know, enthusiasm and, and talent am I going to be able to bring to the table here? You know, it, if, if something really grabs you, if something is, you know, a passion project for you, um, it's going to be a lot easier for you to, to dive into that headlong and really, you know, uh, inject yourself into that project. Um, whereas, you know, if you start thinking about projects that are kind of less compelling to you, maybe even onerous to you, um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to become uh, difficult to, to continue to, to maintain those investments a lot more quickly. And so, you know, if you, if you start thinking about, you know, how can I respond best to all of the different problems that we face. I think ignoring the fact that you care more about certain things than others or you know, certain kinds of contributions are, are more difficult for you or more onerous for you than others. Um, I think ignoring those kinds of factors would be a mistake. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's better to pick something that's not maximally helpful to the universe that you can do for a long time than something you do for six months and then burn out on, I guess. Right. Um, and likewise, uh, I mean, it is the case though, that you need to think about, uh, what other people are doing, right. Um, you personally not buying something as we've been discussing, doesn't have much of a price signal, but if there's a boycott of grapes in California, as there was when I was a kid, then participating in that organized boycott with coherent demands and, you know, statements being made by activists around the topic is a lot more effective perhaps than just, you know, personal purchasing stuff that, you know, it, it bothers me to think about the conditions of the workers picking the grapes. And so I don't buy the grapes is different than I'm participating in an organized boycott of grapes in order to get people who grow grapes in California to pay their workers more and to treat them better. That's, um, that's absolutely right. So I think that, you know, one of the things that vegetarians have done that's really important in that you know, would be kind of cool if uh, if they would do in a more focused way um, in the future is to, you know, to make it easier for people to justify focusing their efforts on, you know, this particular set of issues, um, you know, rather than, than others. Um, so, you know, if you think about all of the, you know, the meat alternative products in the grocery store again, or, you know, the, the vegetarian items on menus. Um, the fact that, you know, there are all of these people are, who are coordinating around this sort of activism makes it, you know, a lot more coherent for you to join them. Um, and it makes it easier for you to join them. You don't have to give up quite as much uh, to do it. And so, you know, if, you, if you're thinking about, vegetarians as in some sense trying to attract people you know to their cause rather than others you know it sort of takes on the character of you know an entrepreneurship effort where it's like there are you know a lot of people out there in the market for something to do um, some way to contribute and you know you're trying to sort of sell them on your thing rather than the things that other people have on offer for people to contribute to. Um, and so, you know, vegetarians, uh, you know, are, are offering people one, one such outlet. Um, and, 
you know, I mean, people like Michael Pollan are are offering another, right? When people talk about the the conscientious meat producers and, and only, you know, buying meat from small family farms. Uh, that too is is giving people an outlet for um, for them to to practice activism in in a way that's that's coherent because of what other people are doing. Um, and there's just kind of a whole landscape of this stuff. Yeah, although it might even be stronger that there's a, a real danger in turning a mere consumption choice into activism in people's minds, um, which we tend to do a lot in the United States. Uh, I mean, I remember very clearly when I went and saw um, An Inconvenient Truth, that Al Gore climate change movie, and it just presents all of this uh, data about how bad things are. And then over the credits, it says things like bike to work, take a shorter shower, get a LED light bulb, uh, which surely isn't to the scale of the first half of the, you know, the, the movie before the credits. Uh, there's a couple of dangers there, maybe. Um, one of them might be that you can feel like you've done enough as long as you are perfectly purchasing things, right? As long as everything I buy is the maximally best thing at all times, then I'm done and I don't have to worry about anything else. And I guess sort of the market will fix all of society's problems, um, which seems you know it's factually unlikely to me. But also there's a danger that uh, it puts a lot of onus on you. So if it's the case that you need to purchase the right things in order to not be complicit, so this is kind of clean hands ethics, then it encourages you to turn inward and to look a lot at your purchases to make sure that you've done enough research on how exactly the entire life cycle of this reusable grocery bag was and you know maybe it's made out of plastic how does this weigh against handwoven hemp baskets that i saw somebody else carry right it makes you sort of almost neurotically have to examine your own personal choices um and think that we are responsible for a problem like climate change or the way that industrial agriculture treats chickens and so we includes me personally and cargill or and monsanto or and exxon um and so we all need to work on our acts we all need to clean up our acts which kind of lets off the the actual like serious bad actors off the hook because you're spending a lot of time making sure you're doing the right things and then when you do it you can feel good about yourself uh which is always nice you can feel superior to other people which is very nice i mean i come from northern california so i'm very familiar with that energy that people have uh that you get to look down your nose at people um rather than actually thinking about materially changing things so you know the other kind of danger that i see with um any sort of claims to what we ought to be consuming in any sense of that word is that it, you know, it's too sort of self-focused without, without that claim of, you know, without that um, second move of a boycott or some kind of activism. Yeah. I think that that is a really good worry. So, you know, one thing in writing the book that I was trying to do was to find opportunities to, to be as positive toward vegetarians as I could be. Um, and so you'll, you'll notice that, you know, as I, as I work through the arguments, I'm, I'm not really trying to, to really sort of go after vegetarianism to, to try to argue that this is a, a misguided, uh, form of activism. Um, but I do think that that means that there is, you know, there is sort of an, a remaining opportunity, um, to really think more critically about whether or not this is the best way um, for people to proceed if they're worried about these kinds of issues. Uh, and I think there is this kind of concern that I think, um, 
you know, I, I don't really develop in the book, but, uh, you know, you, you are, are giving really good voice to, which is, you know, if you think about what the vegetarian movement is, right, you've got literally millions of people around the world who have been, you know, devoting themselves really powerfully to this set of issues for decades and, you know, who are willing to, to not just sort of sign a petition or something, but make really significant lifestyle changes and, and reshape a lot of their identities around a particular form of action, you know, and if you think about, you know, how much have these people been able to accomplish in terms of transforming the industry? Uh, you know, it's, it's not totally obvious that, um, that the outputs have, have lined up with the amount of effort that, have, that has been invested. Um, and I think, you know, if, if you're persuaded by that kind of worry, then uh, it might be that, you know, maybe part of the problem is that that so much of this energy is being devoted inward uh, rather than, you know, people saying, look, no, I'm, I don't care about what goes in my mouth. I care about changing this industry and I'm not going to rest until we actually get meaningful changes. You know, if you had millions of people making serious lifestyle changes to engage in other kinds of activism, um, I think you'd be surprised uh, if you, you know, didn't have more substantial results, um, you know, after decades, uh, you know, at least in most kinds of cases. So one, one thing that's in an end note um, in the book that, you know, I, I didn't put in the main text because I, I, I wanted to, to not be sort of needlessly, you know, jabby at vegetarians, but I think... Well, now you don't even sound like a philosopher, not wanting to be needlessly jabby at people. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I, <laughs> I think it's important in the context of a book like this that if you care about convincing people, you know, and you care about convincing people about something that means a lot to them, then in some sense, you need to be able to have them feel like you sort of are on their side in a way that you sure. that you sort of get where they're coming from. And so yeah. I, I really wanted to make sure that the book was written so I wasn't, you know, making people feel like this is a hostile conversation. Um, but yeah, one thing that I was going, uh, was, you know, kind of going for, back and forth on how to include, I end up, up, ended up putting it in at the end as a note, um, is just if you think about uh, all of the concerns that, you hear about the meat industry's lobbying power. Um, if you actually look at how much money is spent uh, in the United States by the meat industry on lobbying, uh, I don't know how accurate the, the, the numbers that you get from like open secrets uh, are, but if they are accurate, then you know, you're talking about um, an amount of money where like if, if you got the vegetarians of the United States to donate like a pretty insignificant amount of money each uh, every year, they could easily dwarf the you know political spending of the meat industry. Um, so here's here's what I say in the book: uh, If one million vegetarians were willing to donate just ten dollars a week to support their cause in politics, this would generate 
$520 million per year, more than 10 times as much as the American meat industry spent in a presidential election year. In reality, however, uh, you know, few vegetarians translate their activism into aggressive political advocacy with the result that industry players routinely dwarf their political influence. Uh, I think that those numbers were 2020 numbers. So yeah, last, uh, last year during the election, um, you know, the meat industry, they contributed $42 million in 2020 to federal campaigns. And then they spent another $9.5 million on lobbying, right? So you've got uh, over $50 million in political spending by the meat industry, just trying to, you know, push for candidates who are going to be, be friendlier to them and the policies that they need. Sounds like a lot of money, right? But if you think about a movement that, you know, if, the, if 1% of Americans are vegetarians, then you're talking about, you know, 3 million people uh, in the United States. It doesn't take anything for 3 million people to, you know, to raise 50 something million dollars. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's just striking. You've got 50 million people, uh, you've got a mil- like 3 million people, let's say, uh, at least who are willing to, to, you know, never eat meat. Like every day they are in some way taking some action to support this cause. And, you know, yet uh, these people are being outspent by an industry by a vast margin, um, you know, at a price tag of about $50 million. That's, that to me is striking. Yeah, and certainly um, to the extent that vegetarian people or vegetarianism overlaps with other sort of leftist political ideas, which I think is a, a very big overlap, but not 100 percent, you know, perfect circle Venn diagram. Uh, then the fact that in this one area, people who have left political commitments and are vegetarian are sort of trusting to market forces to solve an inefficiency in the market by responding to consumer demand seems strange <laughs> since they don't do that for other aspects of their activism or things that they care about as much. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think that there is a kind of common phenomenon on the left, which is um, this idea of sort of trying to be the change that, that you want to see in the world yeah. and where that gets uh, manifested in you know, a sort of consumption oriented way, right? People want the fair trade coffee. They want, um, you know, the, the fair trade clothing. Um, and, you know, now fair trade isn't even good enough. Like that's monstrous to have fair trade. Mm-hmm. It's got to be, what is it? Equal exchange or whatever they call it now. Sure. Um, and don't forget um, bird friendly shade grown as well. Sure. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, so there's like the number of, of, labels and stickers that you can have on something um, to to sort of assure you that that you have done this in the right way is is incredible and i i do think that this is something that appeals to folks on the left um, more than it does to people on the right um you know and so yeah i mean it is sort of striking that this this sort of uh market driven almost commercialized form of activism has arisen, you know, among precisely the people who I think uh, 
you know, want to tell themselves that markets aren't really the solution. But I think it also kind of makes sense in a way, which is, uh, you know, if, you, if you're uncomfortable with markets and participating in markets and, uh, you know, engaging in, in commerce, engaging in trade, um, you know, buying stuff at the store, uh, you're going to be maybe more attracted to somebody who, you know, offers you a way to, you know, alleviate your, your sense of guilt or discomfort by, you know, spending a little bit more money and, uh, you know, getting, getting a certain label or getting a certain uh, status as a result. Um, and so, yeah. you know, I think it's, it's in a way perverse because it's kind of the, the sort of commercialization of activism. Um, but it's also sort of strikingly predictable um, that this is that this is how it would go. Yeah, and I've written about this in a few places, um, including with uh, Samantha Knoll uh, talking about local food. That um, you know, the issue is that in many ways we've sort of allowed ourselves to be defined down to consumers, right? So if you think about all the range of actions you might take for something that seems important to you, if you think of yourself as a human. And then like a smaller group of that, if you think of yourselves as a citizen, and then an even smaller subset, if you think of yourself as a consumer, um, if we think that we are only sort of consumers, that, you know, political action is, seems fruitless, uh, that outside of political action seems fruitless or dangerous, um, that all we have left is our consumer choices, then it makes maybe some sense that people will then try to really lean in on that. You know, like I can't fix all the problems in the world, but I can make sure that, but I do know that I can pressure Disney to make some kind of statement about something that's important to me or to make some kind of casting choice that's important to me. Um, and so I can, so I'm going to put a ton of mental energy into a thing where I feel like I can do something. And it makes a certain amount of sense that people would do that, but it is sort of a loss to maybe some larger scale kind of activism. But do you think that there's something about food that is different? So you could run all the same arguments that you did just now about um, buying clothes that are produced in an ethical way, maybe clothes that um, you know are fair trade, so they pay the people that work on it or that are safe or that the cotton is harvested sustainably, um, something like that. But it feels like maybe something about food. I don't know if it's because we take it into our bodies or, or, or what exactly it is that feels more salient, more literally visceral to people um, than some of those other kinds of concerns, like where you get your electronics from. Yeah. So I think there are a few different ways that, that you could sort of amplify it. I mean, one in the context of meat and not food more generally is, you know, you mm-hmm. might just be concerned that, you know, you're, you're like eating the harm, <laughs> uh, right. you know, when, when you buy, let's say, you know, uh, an iPad or something that has been produced by people who, you know, have been mistreated, let's say, uh, you know, you're not sort of directly like, it's not that the iPad itself is this sort of like physical uh, manifestation of, of that harm in as salient a way as when you're like literally eating the body of, you know, the victim. Um, So I think there's, there's, there's something more sort of, you know, viscerally uh, present about, about what's, 
um, what's sort of wrong with, with the meat. Um, but I think, you know, there's, there's also just a kind of like emotional, uh, experience of, you know, of enjoying, uh, food and seeing it as nourishing and, and, uh, you know, an expression of so many things that makes people conflicted when, when there is a sort of conflicting background, right? So like, you know, when I cook a big meal for my family or for my friends, um, there's a sense in which I'm sort of pouring my love and my, you know, my care into that, uh, into that dish. And then, you know, if there's something about it that is troubling, um, I think there's there's something striking about that that might make people, you know, open to the the possibility that maybe it would be valuable to you know to take out of it whatever it is that has tainted it with the world's problems, um, you know. Whereas, you know, I think a lot of people don't necessarily uh, place that kind of meaning on, you know, the physical stuff that they buy, like a sweatshirt, you know, that you get from Target, let's say, you know, maybe you have concerns about where that sweatshirt came from, but the sweatshirt itself, you know, it's, it's nothing to you. Uh, whereas, you know, the food that you eat has a, a special sort of emotional place in your life, um, that makes you sort of particularly susceptible to feeling conflicted about it. Yeah. And I mean, food does have these sorts of like very deep resonances and engages a lot of our senses. That's one reason um, when I teach my philosophy of food class that I have them share food with each other. So they, if they, I mean, the, the making it and bringing it part is optional. They have to present about a food that's meaningful to them and talk about why it's meaningful. Um, and then if they like, uh, they can actually bring the food to share with each other, which is, which, you know, a lot of students do depending on what they're picking and, you know, income maybe and things like that. Um, and it's a great experience because it engages all these sorts of senses. It builds more of a sense of community with somebody, more understanding of them if you've eaten with them. Um, and then in the pandemic, since moving into um, online teaching only, as uh, I was for a while, uh I turned it into sort of a virtual sharing of food, you know, people talking about some recipe or some thing that they buy that is, has a deep personal significance for them and why it does. So um, I've also asked my guests to do that on this podcast and I asked you to bring a recipe. So can you talk about the food that you are virtually sharing with everybody today? Yeah, thanks. Uh, so the, uh, the assignment sounds really cool. Um, I, I love that. And uh I'm going to have to think about how I could incorporate it into my... Oh, it's great to do. I'll, I'll tell you from a philosophy standpoint, you know, if you try to get students to talk about a lot of philosophical topics, they have been trained by us to be scared to volunteer their own opinions or th like their grandmother's knowledge, what they learned growing up, because, you know, they've, at least at the university where I'm teaching, they've, you know, they've, there's a sort of deprecation of home knowledge, but nobody has taught them that's true about food. <laughs> They're very happy to strongly state their opinions, to defend why licorice is gross, and to say that their grandmother's recipe is the best recipe. And so it's a real good way to generate these kinds of conversations. That's great. Yeah. I'm gonna have to uh I'm gonna have to explore that space further. So yeah, let me tell you about the uh the recipe that I shared. Um basically uh you know this is a recipe that tries to take um, a beloved New Orleans food, red beans and rice, that 
uh, is, you know, so important culturally here. Traditionally, it was the sort of Monday food, uh, you know, while, uh, while mom is, is working all day, uh, you know, around the house, uh, you know, after the long weekend with, with everybody, uh, you know, home for the weekend, uh, mom gets a day of, of hard work while everybody else, uh, I guess, doesn't contribute in quite that same way. And the tradition was to throw on a big pot of, uh, of red beans to, to cook um, for, you know, many hours. And uh, traditionally, this is a very meat intensive meal. So, you know, it's not that, you know, there's a large amount of meat necessarily um, you know, as by volume, but a lot of the flavor of the dish is coming from you know, these very sort of fatty pork products. So you've got, um, you know, traditionally there would be sausage or ham hocks or uh, tasso ham, um, you know, any, any number of things getting thrown into there uh, to, uh, to, to give, give body and flavor to the beans. And, you know, I've had vegan versions of this dish and, you know, my experience has tended to be that they just, they're not really the same food. Um, they are, you know, it's just beans. Um, people can sort of spruce them up in various ways, but uh, there's just no replacing that, that depth and that richness that, that comes from uh, the pork, at least on the, the, the vegetarian or vegan preparations that I've had. Um, and what I discovered was that there is something that you can do to try and bring some of that flavor back, which is, um, so in, uh, in New Orleans, uh, and in uh, Louisiana more generally, um, people eat a lot of gumbo and, and the backbone of gumbo is a really dark roux. So you take flour and oil and you just cook it down until the flour basically toasts and the oil becomes super dark and, you know, like a, I mean, you can cook it kind of as long as you want um, to, to get like a really, really dark, deep brown uh, color. Um, and as it toasts, uh, the chemical reaction that's happening in the flour is the Maillard reaction. It's the same reaction that takes place on the surface of meat when you brown it, and that's responsible for so much of the distinctive flavor of meat. Um, doesn't taste meaty, but it just tastes rich and savory and deep in a way that's, uh, that's hard to get from a lot of vegetarian ingredients. Um, and so uh, what I discovered was that if you make beans uh, and you start it with a dark roux as if you were making gumbo, um, you actually can replace some of that richness that the beans, uh, that the, the sort of meat containing beans have, um, but without having, you know, anything non-vegan in the dish. And so what this, what this dish is trying to do is, is produce some of that, you know, really sort of traditional home cooking type, uh, type experience of, of eating red beans and rice, you know, that tastes kind of the way it's supposed to taste. Um, but without some of that, uh, without without all of the meat ingredients that that traditionally go into it. 
Yeah, that's fantastic. I think that, um, I mean, controversial opinion among vegans, vegetarians, but I think that it's often a mistake to try to perfectly replicate a taste that you miss. And I get why people do it because they miss something that makes sense uh, of a, of chicken or, you know, of a meat in particular, but much better is when you can figure out what it is about that taste that you like, or what it is about that taste that you miss and find other ways to do it. That celebrates the, the actual ingredients that you're using. I think that you get sort of a, a better result, <laughs> certainly when you're trying to feed it to non uh, vegans and vegetarians. I completely uh, agree with you. Um, I mean, I have, I have certainly, uh, you know, explored the landscape of, of, you know, meat substitutes. And sometimes, you know, they are, you know, they're okay in themselves. Um, but oftentimes, you know, they're not okay. And, and in a lot of cases, <laughs> right, you know, you just say to yourself, well, like, most of the foods that there are, are not meat. Um, and, you know, why did you have to insist on making you know, a fake version of this one thing that you're supposedly not supposed to eat instead of just making a really good something else. Um, yeah. And in this case, I think, you know, you're exactly right that like what the dish is trying to recreate is not having meat in your beans. Like, I mean, if you think about eating red beans and rice that's been cooking on the stove for, you know, hours and hours, like, the whole thing is kind of soupy and broken down to begin with. Like getting a piece of meat in your mouth is not really an important part of what you are enjoying about this experience. Um, and so really like all you want is when you put the food in your mouth, you want it to feel like it has soul and it's not just this side dish, um, you know, that like could have come out of a can or something. Um, and as long as you can capture that, um, then, you know, then you're kind of in business. And by the way, uh, so the red beans recipe, um, you know, I gave you, you can do like a, a really good white bean recipe, um, uh, with like dried lima beans. That's, uh, that's very similar. Spices are a little bit different. Um, but I think, you know, the, the, the general principle of the dark root as the, like, depth giver for the recipe um, has a lot of different applications. And it's something that, you know, I, as someone who, you know, is not a vegetarian, but obviously has some interest in, in the kinds of issues that vegetarians are fighting. Uh, I would love to see uh, more vegetarians take advantage of, of this, this particular strategy for replicating some of what's missing. Um, from a lot of vegetarian dishes. Perfect. So the recipe itself is also a gentle, friendly, welcoming critique of strategy <laughs> toward vegetarians, <laughs> like the book itself. I, I love the, the parallel. Um, well, I'm excited to try it. And uh, I hope people check out the book. I think it's really interesting and a good sort of addition to the conversation whatever your initial starting points, your initial starting intuitions are. Um, but Donnie, I just wanted to thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thank you so much, Ian. This has been a, a really cool conversation. And uh, thanks again for having me on. That was my conversation with Donnie Shahar. Links are in the show notes, including a link to his new book, Why It's Okay to Eat Meat, which I strongly recommend you check out, even or especially if, like me, you don't eat meat. 
If you subscribe and leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts, I'd really appreciate it. It helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Twitter at foodthoughtpod. And if you have a topic you'd like to hear discussed, drop us a line at thoughtaboutfood, all one word, at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to Thought About Food. I hope you enjoyed thinking about food with us today. 